When we were talking about the exquisite beauty of the gospel, I couldn't help but think of Michelangelo and the Sixteen Chapel. He spent four years from 1508 to 1512 painting a ceiling, uh, which sounds absolutely amazing to spend four years on the kind of masterpiece that he put together. It is uh, central to the ceiling. If you've never seen it, I've never been there, but obviously we have pictures of it, that uh, there's scenes from the book of Genesis. Uh, the creation of Adam is the best known one, the most iconic of all of the uh, Frisco's, I guess it was, uh, second only to Leonardo da Vinci's work. But it's a complex designs of all kinds of scene from the scriptures. And I hear when you walk into it and look at it, it's absolutely breathtaking. It is magnificent in every sense of the word, and the architecture is beyond comparison. Uh, I would love to be one of these people that could get up on a ladder and actually get up near the ceiling to see the fine-tuned elements of that kind of work. Because you know that people who have mastered things to that level uh, often do detail and precision that is unequaled by anyone. And when I began to think through this process, I kept thinking of the text that we're gonna look at this morning, which has its own sense of exquisite beauty, its own sense of workmanship, its own sense of craftsmanship at the hand of our creator and our God. And so we wanna begin in Romans chapter 10. We're actually gonna back up a couple of verses to include some text that we actually uh, touched on last time but wanna include in this journey this morning. Romans 10, 12 through 17. Begins this way, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher or a messenger? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so Paul, as he's outlining this uh, magnificent section of scripture, uh, quotes from Isaiah 52, seven, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good messages or good news. And then Isaiah 53, one, Lord, who has believed our report? No matter how magnificent, no matter how spectacular the message is, there is always people who will reject it and dislike it. Uh, I was born up in Calgary, Alberta, and one of the great privileges we had is to, within an hour's drive, get into the Canadian Rockies. And that is a panoramic scene that it, I would put up against almost any other uh, scenic ve uh, venue in the entire world. They, um, they, you can go back up into the Kananaskis area, you can go to Banff National Park, you can head up to Radium Hot Springs, you can go to Jasper National Park, you have glacier lakes that have this amazing sort of almost what bluish, amazing bluish color to it and uh, that's really unique in so many different ways. 
And then when you get a chance to hike up back into some of the hill areas and even up on the mountains, you get into these recessed areas where there's these turquoise-type lakes that uh, are just magnificent. It's just a spectacular scenery from the very smallest elements of the lakes to the majestic Rockies. I, I was looking at it uh, this morning and uh, the tallest mountain, Mount Columbia, is 12,293 feet. It, it's, it's quite a scene to be up in that kind of venue and to appreciate it for what it is. Well, as we think about that, I want you to think about the, the exquisite beauty of the gospel. And what I mean by exquisite is really this, the idea that there is this workmanship that God that is flawless to precision. And the idea of beauty has about it here, as he quotes the Old Testament, the, the idea of beauty not only has this sense of being awestruck by the majesty and the glory and the spectacular nature of something, but it also has this underlying idea of something that's timely, something that, that it comes at exactly the right moment in exactly the right way uh, to bring good news. And we'll take a look at that as we do it. But when we start this text, I want you to look at verse 12 and 13 for a minute. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. It sounds like an ideal world, doesn't it? Where there's no discrimination, there's no prejudice between ethnic groups. It's kind of the world we often want to dream about. Uh, it's this, this sense that the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. You know, we live in a world that that sounds spectacular, but it sounds fairy ish we live in a world where everyone sort of has this idea that, it's, that they think they're basically right, that they're right with God, everything's good. If they do their best to be a good person, then they're, when they die, they get to go to heaven. But in the last phrase of this text, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so it throws a disconnect in our mind, is that if we live in a world that there is that we think we're basically right and we're trying to do good and we're trying to help one another, what in the world is it that we need to be saved from? And, And the tone of the text indicates that everyone needs to respond to this. Whoever would call on the name of the Lord will be saved, so there's some kind of perilous danger that humanity faces, which if we were taking the time again and going back to Romans chapter three, we would understand that it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that sin separates us from God. It it puts us at at odds with God. We are at enmity with God. And Romans five is very clear about the fact that not only are we helpless to fix the problem, but we are ungodly, we are sinners, and we're enemies of God. And so we need to be saved from a God who is just and right, who will ultimately pour out his wrath upon what is evil, and that puts us in harm's way. And yet in all of this, it tells us something very special, that God is rich in his grace, and he's offering it to anybody who wants to sort of cling to the rescue ring, the ones who will respond to him in faith. Now, the problem he's already identified in chapter 10 is the the problem back then is exactly the problem we deal with today. If you go back to chapter 10, verse three, you'll discover that Israel had a problem of trying to establish their own sense of righteousness, to, to demonstrate and establish that they're right in their own eyes and that God has to accept that. Um, and it becomes a problem. Internally, you'll notice in 10.1 that people had a zeal for God They had a passion for God, 
but they didn't do it according to knowledge. And today we see the same kind of thing. We have people that are defining their own sense of spirituality and they're trying to establish their own standards by which God ought to respond to and respect. But all of those things fall short of the glory of God. And so we live in a culture, we live in an environment where people are trying to establish their own basis for being right, their own morality, their own sense of, their own basis for why they're gonna get to a better place when they die. And people are, in a sense, creating their own sense of spirituality. They don't want formal stuff, they may not want other people telling them what to do, they're gonna create their own level of spirituality. And and so philosophically, it's going to be difficult. What do I need to be saved from if I'm basically a good person? In my own eyes, I think I'm basically righteous and I'm a spiritual person, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that God's word is formulated here to help us to see that God is, in many ways, not only the beauty that we wanna see out of Psalm 27, but he has communicated something to us that I'm entitling the exquisite beauty of the gospel. He follows those verses up with four questions, and I want you to notice them briefly. How then will we call on him, on God, in whom they have not believed? That's an interesting statement. I think immediately of Acts 17 when Paul was in Athens and he went, was waiting for some partners in crime, so to speak, to, to get there and he went through the city square and he saw all those pedestals, all those uh, stations around the city that were for idols. And so he saw that they were extremely religious. They worshiped, they were very pantheistic. They had all kinds of gods for de- several different things. And then he saw one pedestal that was to the unknown God. And so he comes to them and he says, listen, what you worship in ignorance, I am going to proclaim who that God is. And so he, it really piggybacks on the same thing. How is it that people truly call on a God that they know nothing about? They might be pantheistic, they might believe in lots of gods, they might be spiritual, they might have established their own sense of righteousness and think they're pretty good, but people can be very religious and very spiritual and be profoundly ignorant of the God of the Bible. And so it's a legitimate question even though it may sound funny to us. The second one is how will they believe in him if they've not heard? I mean it's, it's, it's a logical question is how is it that people find out about this God who has communicated to us through his son in the gospel? The third question is how will they hear without a preacher? Uh, the idea is, is someone proclaims. It, I, I think it would be a mistake for us to think of it in terms of a paid person that has a role of being a pastor who teaches on Sunday morning. That would be the wrong concept. In fact, when we go back to Isaiah, the only identifying uh, messengers are the watchmen who stood on the walls who would proclaim a message to people either to warn them or communicate good news. So these are just, you need to see this as, You know, how will they hear without someone communicating the message? And the fourth one is, how will they preach unless they're sent? So the question is, is that if people need to be saved, how are they going to discover this? How are they going to see this beauty of the gospel? Now, bad theology would tell us, and there's a lot of people who have this bad theology, that well, okay, if God has chosen some and he's predestined them, all those kinds of things, then he doesn't need me. It's kind of a fatalism that a lot of people get into. 
But it's, a, it's an ignorance of the gospel that that comes out of. Good theology would say, God has chosen me to be part of the process of how he helps others get the opportunity to discover the riches of God's grace. I mean, what believer, what genuine believer wouldn't be absolutely thrilled with the reality that God would choose them to carry his message, not ours, to people who need to hear good news? And yet, that's one of the great struggles that we have. But the magnificent beauty here is that there's a genuine concern for how people are going to hear the gospel. Paul raises it because he says, God's just not leaving people to themselves. God, they're just not floundering without help. He is concerned about lost people. And yet, he has chosen a very particular way. But we have to figure out how we're gonna interpret those questions. What does this have to do with the exquisite beauty of the gospel? Well, let me take you back to Romans 8 for just a minute and let you get the big picture. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna illustrate this and I'm gonna sort of default to the guys in a minute to, because it's a one that maybe the ladies aren't quite as familiar with. But if you go back to Romans 8, 29 and 30, you will see what I would call this great, exquisite master plan of God. It is a flawless master plan that God has thought through everything from beginning to end, and it deals with the idea of foreknowledge. It goes back to the time when God in eternity past had uh, chosen to create man, he allowed man the freedom to choose, and he permitted the fall of man, and then having humanity under his wrath, he wasn't content to leave it that way, so he provided a sacrifice, his own son, in his plan to deal with that wrath so that whoever comes to him and puts faith in Christ to be a substitute for the sin that they deserve God's wrath for, then they can find forgiveness of sins and become part of God's family. This is God's divine redemptive master plan. It is flawlessly precise and it is magnificent because it shows the riches of God's grace, glory, and mercy. And so the idea here is that that becomes the framework. Now, here's the illustration I wanted to use, and ladies, if you don't connect to this, I'll apologize later. I was uh, rummaging around trying to figure out what would be something really powerful and magnificent, and I ran across this uh, Hemi engine. And uh, the reason I'm impressed by it is uh, for my birthday, I got to drive around a Corvette that had about 350 horsepower on it. It had some giddy up and go for a Corvette. But this particular engine is a Hemi. It has 808 horsepower. Now, I'm thinking that crazy thing can get up and move. But when you look at a Hemi and you look at the specs for it, you will break it down into a multitude of different smaller components that makes that Hemi run. I mean, there's all kinds of intricate, highly precise components for that to to, to run properly. Uh, It's supposed to run on full synthetic oil. Uh, There's explanations in the instructions for it. The first 500 miles of operation do not drive for long periods of time at any single speed. Always change the speed up. Don't tow a trailer or put other heavy loads on this vehicle. Check the engines, oil, and coolant levels daily. Why? Because they don't want you destroying the engine. If you don't follow the specs and deal with it in the way that it ought to be dealt with, you can destroy even an engine that is this powerful. If you wanna take care of it and you want it to last, you gotta look after it. There's a lot of little details that have to be cared for. 
And what I think is especially significant about it is that if you look at the Hemi, if you sort of pop the hood on a car and look at it, you're just awed by the technological skill and craftsmanship of such a powerful engine. But we also need to know that it's not gonna function unless there's a lot of component, smaller parts that make that thing work. And so there's this, what I would call this flawless surgical precision in the master plan, but the, the power of it's in the details. And so as we begin to look at the exquisite beauty of the gospel, it's really in these four questions. God has this master plan that he foreknowledge is, he has foreknowledge of those that makes them the object of his love. He's going to predestine them. He's going to be the one who calls them. They're gonna be justified and glorified. But these four questions, the reality of them, are kinda of like the, the intricate smaller parts. The master plan doesn't work unless the smaller component parts like this absolutely work perfectly. Because if any of these get broken, it's like pulling a spark plug out of a car. If you pull one out, yeah, you could probably get away with it. If you pull another one out, it's gonna start running badly. And it doesn't take much to pull a few key things out of an engine, and it really starts to deteriorate quickly. Well, in God's exquisite master plan, this big picture of his redemptive plan, it has these component things that need to happen for it to keep moving. And I will propose to you, if I wanna borrow the metaphor, that these four questions are kinda of like the spark plugs, the camshaft, the pistons, and the cylinder heads of God's redemptive work here on earth in real life where, the, where life hits us the hardest. And so believers are going to be the ones that God says, listen, I have saved you, I've redeemed you from my wrath and from your sin and your brokenness and death. And now when he saves us, he's going to turn us around and send us back out into the world as his messengers to respond to these questions. How is it a someone is supposed to believe in a God that they're ignorant of? They're not gonna figure it out on their own. It's not just gonna happen automatically. How is it that these people are going to hear the message and the beauty of the gospel? It's gonna be believers. It's gonna be his people who he's sending out. How are these people gonna have a chance to call on his name? And so when you get through this text, you come to this verse where it says, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now the quote actually goes back to Isaiah 52. It's an interesting context. God's people have uh, struggled at different times in their history about being overrun and taken prisoner by other nations. They were in Egypt at one point. Uh, the Assyrians uh, have captured them. And God has then promised that he's going to redeem them. Most of us don't necessarily understand what it means to be taken captive and prisoner and that we are then enslaved to another nation to do their bidding or whatever they would choose to do. But Israel had times in their history where they were exiled for 70 years, for example, before they returned to Israel. They were held prisoner and God made promises to them. And so when you get to Isaiah 52, it's one of those moments. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. 
Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed. But at, so at some point, God's gonna move, and he's gonna send messengers to his people, and this is where the quote comes in, in verse seven. How lovely are the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who announces peace and bring good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says, Zion, your God reigns. And I wanna read the next verses, verses eight, nine, and 10, because I want you to hear the exhilaration. I mean, they're in prison, they're captive, there's no hope, there's no way they can free themselves, and yet God's gonna work to deliver them. It's probably the most exhilarating news they can hear. And so it says this, listen, you watchmen, lift up your voices, Shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has barred his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may know the salvation of our God. I mean, this is getting the best news of life. And, ex- and the idea here is that the people who bring this news are, are really, their feet are beautiful because they're bringing new hope and new life and a new opportunity to people who've been enslaved and imprisoned probably most of their life. And what makes it exquisite is that this is part of God's flawless craftsmanship, this, this sense of beautiful, ingenious, delicate, or elaborate execution of, of the good news of God to his own people. He is one who is orchestrating and he's got his fingerprints on the journey of where they're going. And certainly he permits certain things to happen when his people abandon him. He promised that he would discipline them and even exile them. But there's always this hope And so when you go to Isaiah 52, there's all of a sudden these messages are saying, the time is now. God is gonna free you. This is the moment of victory. And so they can celebrate and be joyful and they can understand it. And so there's, when Paul writes this and inserts it into Romans chapter 10, he he doesn't look like being free from physical circumstances. He's talking about the spiritual deliverance of the gospel. And so there's three things that struck me about this particular text. He says, first of all, there's the beauty of the message. The message is new life. It is freedom and deliverance promised by God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it helps us understand that the greatest slavery that all of humanity live in is the the slavery of sin and death. And we know that we're enslaved to it because no human being will ever escape physical death, which becomes the perfect evidence that we are enslaved in a, in a spiritual and sinful death that separates us from God. And so it is one that we are helpless to deliver ourselves from, but that's the beauty, that's the exquisite, masterful plan that God has. The second point is that the be- it's the beauty of the messengers. The ones that God sends out are the ones that have been changed themselves by the gospel. And what happens is God then sends them out. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 28. You are my disciples. Go and make disciples. Proclaim the gospel. Be my witnesses. I'm not telling you to build your own kingdoms. Just communicate my message to 
people who are lost, who are enslaved to sin, who need to discover the freedom of the gospel and discover the riches of God's grace in the person of his son. That's all he asks us to do is be messengers, carry someone else's great news. But what makes it so much more powerful, and I think this becomes the greatest incentive, is those that have truly discovered Christ, those who've truly been changed by the gospel, Those are the people that have the greatest incentive to be the messengers because they know that this gospel has changed their life. It's not just a ritual. It's not just something they grew up with. It's not just some perfunctory uh, social system that they go through. It's not just conforming to an external set of standards. It is a life change by a relationship with Christ as defined by the gospel of Jesus. And that becomes the people who often are often the best people to send. Well, in fact, they're the only people that God wants to send. And in fact, what we ought to discover is that one of the great ways that God demonstrates the exquisite beauty of his handiwork in the gospel is where he takes ordinary, destroyed, broken human beings like us and he fills us with the treasure of the gospel and the presence of Christ And and in fact, the more broken we are, the more the radiant presence of Christ is radiated from our lives as we walk in humble obedience to the Spirit of God, as we live according to his word, as we're willing to live by faith and trust that the power is in the gospel and not in my performance, then there is this amazing, exhilarating privilege that we have as believers that the greatest occupation that we have in this life is not our jobs, and it's not the money we make, it's this calling that God has placed on us to be sent into a dark world with the message of hope. It's the message of life, it's the message of a second chance. And so that becomes the power of it. And then the beauty for the messengers, not just the beauty of the messengers, is that we have this chance to bring this message to people that desperately need hope. When he gets to the next verse, he talks about this kind of something that sounds a bit disconnected. However, he says, they did not all heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah says, the Lord, uh, Lord who has believed our report. Now that doesn't sound magnificent, it doesn't sound beautiful. But what I want to remind you of is that there's lots of people who are going to hear the message of the gospel that are gonna reject it. Um, We had, uh, I think, Jake and Megan Cohagen, who are now married, we had their ceremony on Friday. I believe they're heading out to South Dakota or something for a week to relax. They actually said they were gonna tune in while they were driving. Not the person driving is gonna tune in, but the other one will, you know, you get it, anyway. And uh, one of the things that was, uh, we did is we live streamed it. And uh, the team did a super job, there was a couple things, but the family was looking at the live stream afterwards and there was actually some people that pressed like on it and there's actually someone who pressed dislike on it. Now I don't, I, I, you know, I mean, we're having trouble with sound and that kind of stuff, but it's really hard to imagine someone getting wedding and someone going, I dislike this. I mean, that just, but you know what you discover? It doesn't matter what you're doing in life. There is always, always, it doesn't matter how magnificent the ceremony is. It doesn't matter how beautiful the situation happens to be like a wedding or a marriage. 
There's always someone who's gonna dislike something that's going on. It's astounding how prevalent that is. And so if you think you can win everybody to Christ and, and that's what your job is, it's not. You're to communicate the message of hope and by our lives we have this great privilege to demonstrate genuine transformation as we walk with God and allow the Spirit of God to change us. It's one of the most powerful messages God's can send and we really do nothing other than here's God's message to you, here's how it's changed my life. Now it does remind me that we do have to have something to talk about. One of the great dangers for Christians is that if they turn their Christianity into moralism or they try to simply reduce it to being a nice person and we're, we're committed to being a good person but not a godly person, it's times that we get stuck knowing how to talk about this transformation in our life because we often struggle to see what that is. And I think there's times we've all struggled with that and yet that's not the way God wants us to live. He wants us to live experiencing the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus by the work of the Spirit of God so that we are not just who we are, that we're becoming more Christ-like all the time. And I want to challenge you if you claim to know Christ. What's the Lord doing in your life? How has he been speaking to you? How has he been asking you to step out in faith? What, what changes can you point to in your life that indicate that God is doing something transformative in your life? Because if Christianity becomes simply a religious routine that we just sort of engage once in a while, the message is diminished. I, I think it hampers the reality of what's going on. But regardless, there's this exquisite beauty of the gospel because in this particular situation, when the messengers go out, we know that not everybody's gonna believe it. But the beauty of it is that God gives people the freedom to choose that way. There's a choice. It's deeply distressing. It, it, it can grieve our hearts because there's people that we love that are family and friends that we desperately want them to see come to Christ. And they just mock and laugh at it. I've got my own sense of righteousness. I've got my own sense of spirituality. And I don't need all this religious stuff. But it shows the exquisite beauty of the gospel that even in the grand master plan of eternity, God brings it right down to simple components where he gives people the freedom to make that choice for themselves. You can run into people when something goes wrong, they're really quick to blame God. When they hear the message, the exquisite beauty of the message of the gospel, they dismiss it as if it's irrelevant to life. And so that's why he finishes up in 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, Titus chapter three makes this statement and sometimes you'll run into Christians who try to be very negative. And I understand the fact that people at times need to understand they're lost before they can get saved because if they spend too much time listening to their own press, they think they're perfectly righteous the way they are. They have their own measure of spirituality and everybody does. Everybody has their own God that they worship even if it's themselves. But as you begin to think through this process, it's easy to be negative and condemning but the whole 
picture here, and the reason I've entitled this The Exquisite Beauty of the Gospel is because we want people to see the, the beauty of the gospel. Titus reminds us of this. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And it, so it wasn't, it's not the hate and the wrath and the judgment of God that wins people. It's, it's the kindness and the love of God that attracts people. And so we're called to be sent out to love broken people. We're sent out to be kind to people that are messed up. We're sent to be merciful to people who may not deserve mercy. We're sent to be compassionate to people who can't help themselves. And it becomes one of the great challenges of our own life. You know, as we think about this, I want us to think about the reality that when God sends us out in the world, I believe that this exquisite masterpiece that God has planned and knows the beginning from the end, right down to the detailed components of his people being the spark plugs and the messengers of the gospel, that God has a way of understanding exactly the right time, even if we don't understand it, that because the idea of beauty is not just something that's awe-inspiring and magnificent, but it's timing, that when God sends you out and we're actually willing to follow the leading of his spirit, he will have us say things in the way that we would say it to people because that's exactly what God knows those people need to hear at that particular time, and that's what makes it beautiful. That's what makes it magnificent. That's what makes it awe-inspiring because God uses each of us. Let me finish with this. Lee Wallace was the governor of New Mexico. He was writing a book against Jesus Christ and in the process was converted to Christianity. He had a friend of his who was an agnostic, just like he was. And Robert C. Ingersoll, a famous agnostic, said this to him one time. See here, Wallace, you are a learned man and a thinker. Why don't you gather materials and write a book to prove the falsity concerning Jesus Christ? That no such man ever lived, much less the author and teaching found in the New Testament. And then he said this, such a book would make you famous. It would be a masterpiece and a way of putting an end to the foolishness of this so-called Christ. And what happened to Wallace when he did all of this study as well it happened to many people, he suddenly realized that Jesus was a real person and if a real person, his claim to be God's son was also real. And so one day, he tells us this, I fell on my knees to pray for the first time in my life and I asked God to reveal himself to me to forgive my sins and help me to become a follower of Christ. Toward that morning, broke, uh, toward the morning, the light broke into my soul, and I went into the bedroom, woke my wife, and told her that I had received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's the exquisite beauty of the gospel, where an agnostic person challenges another agnostic person to disprove the reality of Christ and ends up coming to Jesus Christ and accepting him as a Savior. You and I have no idea what God's timing is. He just calls us to be faithful messengers, 
to live a life so that, that the genuineness and the truthfulness of the gospel in the presence of Christ makes genuine change in our life so that this is authentic. And if you're out there this morning and you're listening to us and you're not sure about this relationship with Jesus, you have spent a lot of your life demonstrating your own righteousness. You might have carved out your own spirituality. You might even worship some God. You might even have some sense of the, uh, whatever it happens to be in terms of religion. But I just simply wanna say that if you have never discovered Christ, I encourage you to bow your knee, confess your sin, and receive Christ. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna invite you to bow with me as we pray. Father, there is something that often we take for granted as believers. And I really believe it's the exquisite beauty of the gospel. We find it in your master plan from time and eternity. And we find it in the, in the, in the smallest of questions where you have chosen us to be, as it were, those integral, essential pieces that maybe people don't always see, but it's part of the spark plugs that fuel the whole engine of the gospel, that you sent us out to people who in their ignorance may worship some God, but not Jesus. They will only hear when we walk in obedience to your spirit, and we don't share our message, we share the hope of the gospel, and that our lives are transformed in such a way that people see the genuineness of the power of Christ Father, for those who are watching and have never accepted Jesus, I pray in their own heart that they might bow before you, acknowledge their sin, and ask Christ to come in and forgive their sin and become a follower of Jesus. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.